I was with him when he bought the X-Lax. Unfortunately, he ate it hours before the show, so he had to oh, constantly no. hold it in, or he, he would have shit before he got on stage. Oh, and that would have ruined it for the audience. You know, they'd have missed out on the big event. I think I've just found the clip that we're going to use in the intro to this episode. (laughs) Hello and welcome to episode five of History's Greatest Idiots, where myself and my co-host Eric look back on the history of human mistakes and try and learn lessons from them. So you don't repeat those mistakes, but who are we kidding? We're humans. We make mistakes all the time. Joining me, as always, is Derek. Derek, how are you doing at the moment? I'm, I'm doing pretty good. It's a pretty solid yeah. day here, a solid week. Yeah? What have you been up to? Uh, running around, basically, just uh, like a chicken <laughs> with my head cut off. I've just been wandering and running around. Isn't that kind of how life goes when you get to a certain age? You just like you, you kind of move from one situation to another without a massive plan. So yeah, well, yeah, I remember when I used that. to party and had plans for that. <laughs> now I just kind of run errands. That's like my yeah. existence anymore. Yeah, you find that your tolerance for fun changes as well. Instead of like looking forward to some sort of major blowout or incredible event, you're like, oh god, I get to have like half an hour to myself. Yep. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I get to I get to have a bath. I get to like listen to some music. I get to go for a walk. You know, just like enjoy the stuff day. like that. Yeah, yeah. My the big highlight the big highlight of my week was like, oh, I get to have my second COVID jab. So <gasps> so you're all... I'm all Pfizered up. Nice. I was trying yes. to figure out how to set an appointment today. I was on the right. the app and entering things in, and it told me that my password was wrong and I needed a new one. And <laughs> oh no. So I told him to send me a message. I'm still waiting for it. That was like 7 a.m. So that, I guess that it was you a could while. be waiting a while. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's different in this country. We kind of get text messages out of the blue, which encourage you to make an appointment. So I got a message out of the blue saying the local immunization center is accepting people from your GP surgery. Please make an appointment. So you know, called up and I was like, well. I want to have a bit of a lie-in, so let's say midday, and I just walked in, and about half an hour queuing, got the injection, fainted a little bit, and then, uh, (laughs) I always faint, and then just uh, just left, and you know, now all I have to do is wait about 14 days, and I'll I'll be an immortal that buys Microsoft products, so. There you go. um, (laughs) (laughs) As the conspiracy theories go, we'll either live forever, or we'll be enslaved by Bill Gates, which, I don't know why people think that's, I don't know what people have got against Bill Gates, Leave, leave him alone. He's just a very, he's a very rich geek. Yeah, you know? well, I think we're already enslaved to him. Him and Bezos both yeah. over here, they own us. Pretty much. <laughs> oh, and me. Don't don't get me started. Like, for years I held off on getting Amazon Prime. And since getting Amazon Prime, I'm like, oh, my God, my life is so much easier now. That's facts right there. <laughs> I, I hate it. I've got... Uh, I hate that. I've got a whole castle in my garage of Amazon boxes. <laughs> we actually... Um, see, that's one one thing I will say is that we've helped, myself and my wife have helped three separate families move house because we've put all of the the leftover boxes on free cycle and everyone's just come by like, oh my God, thank you so much. I can pack my entire house with this. I'm like, yeah, if you ever think about moving in the next year, just give us another call. There's no doubt we'll have a load of boxes for you because Amazon's boxes are ridiculously big. Like They're always too big for what you actually get out of them. They like know, to use bags here a lot in my neighborhood. Oh, yeah? or maybe it's just what I order. It comes in, in little bubble bags. So, you know, I'm doing my part to add plastics to the recycle bin. That's that's really good of you. You know, you're really helping, you know, keep the flow of the plastics industry alive. That's that's really good. Yeah, I, I didn't even think about donating the boxes. I just cut them up and put them in the recycle bin. Ah, that's fair enough. I mean, you've probably got a very good recycling like system over there. Which state are you in again? I'm in Arizona, and mm. until recently, they said, just throw whatever you want in the recycling bin, because... Oh. Uh, our recycling plant burnt down, so it's all going to the same hole anyway. Oh, that's ridiculous. <laughs> oh, yeah, and it smelled horrible where I live. The uh, recycling oh, plant's just down the road. So oh, that's not good. It smells a lot like burnt plastic. Uh, yes, which is definitely not good for the environment. Anyway, moving, a lot, moving on from our enslavement at the hands of our uh, capitalist overlords, um, <laughs> I thought I'd update people on our first week of release for History's Greatest Idiots, although it would probably be the, the, the first two weeks. Uh, in fact, I'm, now that I'm thinking about this, this will be out of date by the time I give the statistics, but it's fine. In the first seven days of release for our podcast, we have had a total of 
112 plays. An estimated audience of 22 listeners, which is an interesting division because that means that they've listened to all five episodes on average. So the first four plus the trailer. Cool. Um, everyone's listened to those. I don't know how much they've listened to them, but they have listened to those installments. 54 plays on the first day of release, so that's cool. And then it was like a, a kind of a slow decline and tailing off there, as it always is with these things. Most of the views have been the trailer, but then uh, an interesting division kind of even amongst the episodes. But the two most listened to are the most recent and the first. So people are like, oh, this this first episode's really good, and then I must we must have te- trailed off between uh, episodes two and three, and then we really came back with a vengeance for episode four. Um, audience <laughs> details: sixty six percent of our audience are from the United States, twenty three percent are from the United Kingdom, five percent from Canada, four percent from Ireland, and less than one percent are from Taiwan. So, hello to the one human being that's listening in Taiwan. Yes, we appreciate. Uh, thank you. Yeah, we really appreciate you. How the hell did you find our podcast? Um, <laughs> in terms of uh, like listening platforms, 27% of our listeners have come from Spotify, 25% from Apple Podcasts, 20% from other platforms, but also then it goes down 11% from Anchor, which are our host platform. That's really cool. 7% from Pocket Casts, 4% from Castro. from Overcast, and if I go down to audience demographics, 3% of our audience are between 18 and 22, 12% are 23 to 27, 35% are 28 to 34, 35 to 44 year olds make up 38% of our audience, 3% are 45 to 59, and 6% are over 60. So that's that's hey. kind of interesting. Yeah, and this is the one that kind of doesn't surprise me as much. I, I, I don't know if this is a general trend or not. 83% of our audience are male, um, 16% are female, and 0% non-binary, and 0% non-specific. So it looks like the majority of our audience are men, usually between the ages of 25 and 44. So if there are any advertisers listening, give us your money. So. <laughs> I'm I'm amazed that they know all of that. Like is, is there like a poll out there somewhere or do you I, I think see the thing is I I work kind of in the podcast industry and it's very difficult to get accurate statistics. So a lot of it is generalized because a lot of podcast platforms won't release their statistics to other platforms so what you're getting is anchor who are the people and anchor is a subsidiary of spotify they're kind of guessing at what the statistics are on other platforms but yeah i think that's kind of interesting mostly male mostly you know mid-20s to mid-40s and I, one thing I would really love to know, and this is something that I've, uh, other than the usual statistics that you get, I'd love to know, A, how long people listen for. Like, if they listen to the full episode, or if they're just, like, giving up after 12 minutes or whatever. Um, but also, I'd really love to know how people found us. I'd love to know if they came to us from launch, or if they're just, like, browsing through the history section, or the comedy section, or whatever it might be. I'd love to know how people came across us. I want to know how many of those people over 60 that are listening are just listening to see if it might be somebody they know. Yes. That'd be, <laughs> oh, is that is that my son? Um, the other thing I'm wondering is uh, maybe if the over 60s are, like, kind of silver surfers, and what they've done is they have to go out to the shops, but they don't want their pets to be in distress, and their pets are so sick of NPR that they've just decided to put on a podcast and they've happened across this kind of weird sounding British guy and an American they're like oh this is a bit different this might kind of keep the pets calm so maybe we're pet fodder in which case pet sponsors give us your money Um, (laughs) I get along great with dogs and cats and other pets that ride around in cars with you we are a pet friendly podcast if you want to advertise with us we we love all animals which means that we are open to all kinds of advertising I need to stop plugging the the money side of things now it's, get, it's sounding a little bit desperate really isn't it uh, but that's really interesting you know first week of launch 112 plays 22 uh, estimated audience I'm very happy with that I think that's a positive first week hopefully that keeps on going and uh, I've really enjoyed doing this podcast with you Derek I think we've both put in really good work and uh Yeah, I should also mention another very vital person to this podcast since we launched, Sarah Chi, I think it is, or Sarah Che, who is an artist I found on Fiverr when I was like, oh, I need to design a logo for this thing and a bunch of other 
like social media stuff and bars and graphics and stuff like that. She is so talented. She was so communicative and reasonably priced, and she knocked all the designs out in like a few days. So you can find her information in the description of our podcast on pretty much every platform that you'll find it on. And go and if you're looking for like a cute design for whatever it is your business requires, go and get in touch with her because she's really, really good and incredibly talented. And you can also leave her a tip when she no doubt finishes your work earlier than anticipated, which she did with me both times. So yeah, it was really good. So overall, very pleased with how things are going. Now that we're on episode five halfway through our first 10 episodes. I'm going to mix it up a little bit for you in this one. But first, Eric, I'd like to know, who is your designated idiot for this week? Well, my designated idiot for this week is a musician and American and a man. Okay, I I think that... Musician, American, male. Right, okay. That narrows it down to about three or four hundred thousand people, but let's... I can't wait to see. Well, on the last episode, you, you went into some detail on just the crazy madness of Herb Abrams, and it yes. got me thinking, which sent me down this path. I think we mentioned Gigi Allen, didn't we? And his death, which was a drug-fueled insanity rampage covered in poo. It's... Um, yeah. It's crazy because his life is pretty interesting, too. And, yes. Uh, usually I, I kind of leave it to guessing towards the end, but <laughs> I had to do Gigi Allen. So. Yes. <laughs> you know it's the Gigi Allen. Yeah. Oh and God. you know what? I'll even throw in a little tidbit of how that happened. Okay. Okay. So he was born in Lancaster, New Hampshire in 1956 to a super religious family and was the youngest of two sons. I, I want to point out now, we're recording this on Easter Sunday. <laughs> we don't have anything against religion, but usually like when you start a sentence about someone's upbringing, about how they were brought up in a super religious household, you're either going to find that they become super religious themselves or they kind of immediately rebel against that in their own lives. And knowing Gigi Allen as, as little as I do, I mostly just know about his death, this is going to be an interesting take on what happens with the rest of his life as a result of that. Oh, dude, it's it's messed up. His father <laughs> was uh, described as a full-on religious fanatic, Oof. and uh, they grew up in a log cabin uh, with no running water or electricity. Oh, just like Lincoln. Yeah, except for in <laughs> 1956. So, wow. Um, his father, Merle, told his wife that he was visited by Jesus Christ earlier and that the newborn son would be a great man in the vein of the Messiah. So, because J.C. himself made the visit, Merle convinced his wife that their newborn son should be named Jesus Christ Allen. That's right! That was his name, wasn't it? Oh my god. It it was. I thought that was just a punk thing. I thought it was just (laughs) him going, look at me, I'm rebellious. No, that's his actual name. Right, and then his brother had trouble saying Jesus for some reason, which I'm sure pissed his dad off something fierce, but (laughs) he couldn't say it, so he said Gigi, and there you go, it's Gigi Allen. And stuck. Yep. Uh, So they grew up, or he grew up in that log cabin with no running water or electricity, and it turns out his father was not only a religious fanatic, but he was super abusive and often... threatened uh, the entire family with death. On one occasion, he dug graves in the cellar and threatened to fill them with the members of his family in the near future. That is crazy. That's... Like, literally crazy. Batshit. Yes. (laughs) Um, Holy shit. So... In, in an essay that he wrote entitled His First Ten Years, he wrote that Merle, that's his father, wanted to kill the family in a murder-suicide and despised pleasure, so he allowed the family very little contact with others outside of the home. Despised pleasure? Oh, yeah, it's that's... bad for you. It's sinful. That's, oh, okay. that's the way he looked it's, at it. It's one of those things. All right, okay. Um, in 1961, Gigi's mother filed for divorce and Thank removed God. Bo- both Jesus and his brother Merle Jr. from that situation. So 56 to Sorry, 61. Just, I don't mean to interrupt. Jesus and Mill Jr. is an amazing combination <laughs> of names. It's, it is pretty legit. And it kind of bums <laughs> me out that after the divorce, uh, she did change Jesus' name to Kevin. Because mm. why the hell not? Uh, he still mm. went by Gigi. So, you know. But despite being removed from that horrible situation at the age of six, it still did a, a ton of damage. He was 
Oh, yeah. A, a crap student and at one point uh, put into special education yeah. and uh, had to repeat the third grade. Wow. It brought on some bullying because he yeah. was different and slow. And that just caused him to act out even more. By the time he got to high school, he started cross-dressing. Not because okay. he felt one way or the other about gender or identity, but because he wanted to shock people. And sure. he, was, yeah. he was really into the New York Dolls. Which was oh, of course, his, and they were you know, very famous for it. Yeah, I will say one thing. Sorry, we were going back to the whole. Despite the fact he got out of that situation when he was six years old or five or whatever it was, quite a few child psychologists will say that if a child is in a really abusive situation, you have six months to get them out before they're permanently damaged. So it's no surprise that after six years of that, his psyche was, you know really quite badly changed oh so. yeah well and you'll see some of this stuff from his dad uh repeat itself in, in a little bit oh. of his behavior you know so he said in high school that uh, besides cross-dressing they also used to sell drugs steal mm. break into houses and cars and Jeez. was quoted as saying we just did whatever we wanted for the most part including all the bands we played in people even hated us back then and that's right. kind of debatable because as a, a punk rock guy most people hated him he had a weird club uh cult following but yeah the music wasn't super great <laughs> I mean, a lot of punk music is like that you will find some punk bands that are very good at what they do they know exactly what they're trying to do with their music and then there are a lot of punk musicians who are just sort of like there just sort of making noise and that's fine that's part of the craft and the art and stuff but yeah i I can understand now, going back again to where he said, we just did what we wanted. Well, for the most part of his early life, he couldn't do anything. So right. it's no surprise he went to the other extreme. Wants you know? to do everything now. Literally everything he's missed out on. He wants to do it all now at a million miles an hour. So. Indeed. And then in 1975, <laughs> he graduated high school, which okay. I found awesome. Because I wouldn't have thought that a dude growing up on the East Coast that was held back in third grade and was as insane as this dude was, would make it through high school, but he did, and that's awesome. He got his GED. uh, No, he actually graduated from his high school in Groverton, (laughs) Groverton Fieldsville, it's Mr. Deeds over here all of a sudden, (laughs) in New Hampshire somewhere, but him and his brother started a band shortly after graduation, and it it turns out he played the drums in his first few bands. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until he got into the Stooges and the Ramones and uh, sure. hooked up with Jenya Raven, who was the producer for the Dead Boys, which was a huge okay. East Coast punk band at the time. They formed a band called The Jabbers under right. that, that man's management. And in the early 80s, he really started to become uncontrollable in the punk scene, <laughs> going nuts and becoming uncompromising in his ideas for what they should be doing. And he started mm. being pretty vicious towards his bandmates. God. As well as the audience, because by this time he started promising that he'd commit suicide on stage around Halloween, wow. and he would take out his his audience with him. His fans could come with. In 1984, he hooked up with the Cedar Street Sluts and <laughs> and impressed them so much he earned himself the name the Madman of Manchester because he uh, decided at a show in Peoria, Illinois, that he was gonna shit on stage. There we go. And it's begun. <laughs> the shitting has started. Yep. So and it in, will never end. In 1985, he starts crapping on stage. He took a bunch <laughs> of laxatives before the show. Why? And, and a fellow performer from Bloody Mess is quoted oh. as saying, I was with him when he bought the X-Lax. Unfortunately, he ate it hours before the show, so he had to oh, constantly no. hold it in, or he, he would have shit before he got on stage. Oh, and that would have ruined it for the audience. You know, they'd have missed out on the big event. I think I've just found the clip that we're going to use in the intro to this episode. (laughs) Well, when he started doing this, the old men that were in charge of the hall where they were playing, uh, they started flipping out. Well, no no shit. It just kind of, it caused hundreds of confused punk kids to just kind of wonder what the hell was going on and start running out the door because the smell was described as incredible. (laughs) 
it's it's something else like i've been to a lot of concerts over the years one of the first jobs i had out of uh, my university was as a music reviewer in uh the west midlands and i I was sent to all sorts of concerts and it'd be um classic punk thing one night and then it'd be a metal concert another and white snake (laughs) and one (laughs) week and all this stuff dave coverdale with his like ozone destroying hairstyle um stuff like that there was one concert i went to and it was a punk reunion the night before i'd been to a concert for a band called 36 crazy fists i don't know if you've heard of them they're like a metal band and that was mostly like a younger audience and i I went back and there was like a bar off to the side it was kind of partially behind doors and stuff and there was just like passed out kids there that had clearly been drinking before the concert because they wouldn't get served and i was just that night it was like okay well you know the show's not great kids passed out that's fine the next day i went back it was for a punk gig which had something like six police vans waiting outside the venue because they (laughs) knew it was going to kick off and it was just middle-aged bald men and and by bald i mean they chose to shave their heads because that was the look you know skinhead thing they were throwing each other around it was very very aggressive and i went into the bar area and there was like a kind of a, a rail about eh, about four and a half foot off the ground, just the right height, <clears throat> where if you're standing up and drinking, you can just put your, your pint or whatever on this, this bar. And I just looked on this bar, and there was this like perfectly presented and preserved turd on the, oh, um, God. On the bar. And, and <laughs> not just scattered, it was just perfectly placed there. And I was just thinking, how the hell did that get there? Because this is like a kind of a four-inch wide piece of wood this bar it's nothing it's not like a metal rail or anything like that so it's not like you can like put both your arms up and like place yourself over the bar and produce this fudge dragon you know it's it's a situation where you would have to have carried it there and i was just thinking who in the hell does that sort of thing but hearing that punk kids at the gg allen show were running away from him taking shits is just amazing because like if you've been to music concerts when that sort of thing's going on you see a lot of crazy shit but for punk kids to run away from that must have been pretty intense sorry carry on i just wanted to relay that story (laughs) yeah well now i want to know how it got there it's exactly now (laughs) well he became more and more known for his stage antics, though, especially after, right. you know, that sort of show. But yeah. it he it also started to include self-mutilation. He'd cut himself up, mm. some transgressive acts, and even assaulting the audience members themselves, which yeah. it, it led to it's some arrests. It's a punk show that happens. Well, it, it happened bad enough that he was imprisoned on multiple occasions for assaulting some of his audience. Oh, dear. How, how do it's you never keep been an that audience? Bad. Right? Yeah. <laughs> But um, it turns out those imprisonments for assault usually came around the right time just shortly before Halloween, so he could not Uh, carry out his suicide on stage during a Halloween show. So that's actually pretty good. Uh, That is good. Um, It's like one of the saving graces of assaulting some of your fans is that at least you're not killing yourself, I guess. Like one of the weirdest trade-offs in history, but sure. Yeah, if you're not killing them or yourselves, I suppose you're okay. And I don't think anybody died at any of his shows that I was able to see, like, outright. Several several people's sense of smell probably died that night, but yeah. Murdered by the feces. Yes. That's such a fun word. Yeah, murdered by feces. Another potential uh, intro clip. Uh. (laughs) Well, in addition to punk rock, he recorded and produced spoken word, country, and some traditional rock albums, most of which were poorly produced and recorded and didn't see a whole lot of distribution. But somehow he maintained uh, that cult following and the fan base, despite saying he's going to kill them, putting out horrible music and... (laughs) crapping on stage, on stage. <laughs> yeah. um in lost rosette in uh, 1993 he went on the jane whitney show which is like one of those afternoon talk shows okay. and kind of went into some more depth that he promised that he'd commit suicide and take his fans out with him or make them do it he clarified it by saying that yeah he he would make them kill themselves also the fans he wouldn't Jesus. kill them we're getting jim jones territory here Right? Yeah, I would have been scared to drink at the shows, go yeah. to the shows, be is, anywhere is near the Is that sh- still on that bottle? Because if not, I'm not touching it. <laughs> exactly. But he, um, he, he said he recently planned to kill himself on stage, but the imprisonment stopped him, and that was right. in 1993. Okay. Uh, 
His final show came on June 27th, 1993 at a small club called The Gas Station in Manhattan. I think I've heard about this. Wasn't it an actual gas station? That was turned into a venue or something like that. Yeah, this place. It yeah. it was a neat little used to be uh, full service gas station. That okay, cool. You know, being in Manhattan, they don't. I don't know that they have a lot of gas stations there. No, the, and also the 90s. like there's so little space left in Manhattan to develop that you would just use like whatever is is empty. It's like I need a venue. There's a gas station. Sure, that'll do. Just like <laughs> give me the space. Does it have walls and a and a roof? Doesn't yes. even need Does a roof. Does it have a bathroom? He won't be using it. It doesn't matter. <laughs> well, uh, ha- halfway through the second song, the venue decided he was out of control and <laughs> cut the power. The second song. Yep. Like he came on stage. He's really, really bad. And they're like, oh, okay, maybe he's geeing up the audience. And then it carries on. He's like, no, he's out of control. Exactly. I think he. It must have been a hell of an intro to this show. <laughs> For them to get Imagine to the, the warm-up act. I bet you they were amazing. They were probably they sitting probably in the front one going, what the, the hell? <laughs> so, after that, uh, he proceeded to trash the club, tear it completely okay. apart, and right. uh, then take off all his clothes and walk, walk across the street covered in blood and feces, <laughs> kind of hang out for a little while naked, sort of. Yeah. As you then, do in downtown Manhattan. Yeah, walk around naked covered in blood and feces. That sounds like a yeah. very Manhattan thing to do. You carry on walking, eventually you'll find a tourist who'll take a picture with you in that situation. A street There'll be someone. Right yeah. yeah. But he, he found a pair of shorts and then walked around for about an hour and a half, still covered Sorry, in blood and Sorry, he found a pair of shorts. You'd be amazed at what goes on in New York City, I guess. They've got shorts lying around, naked feces covered blood men. <laughs> Gas stations that play music. Oh, God, it's like some sort of nightmare. So after roaming those streets for about an hour, he decided to stop at his friend's house, right. uh, where they continued to party and do drugs, even slamming heroin. Oh, God. Couldn't he have just gone to sleep? Jesus. Well, he, he did. He overdid it a little bit with uh, <sighs> heroin and slipped into an unconscious state. Oh, God. Uh, sometime in the early morning, he died of the effects of his heroin overdose. And, and probably the poo and blood combination. It, it had to have some sort of E. coli or something in it. Yeah, like eventually sepsis was going to come into that equation when you're mixing blood, open wounds, and feces. Eventually you're going to die. There's just no two ways about it. It's, yeah, you can't do that kind of cocktail no. of bodily fluids. But he was <laughs> too much shy of his 37th birthday, and you would wow. think that the story would conclude there, but it doesn't because at his funeral, his bloated unpreserved corpse was dressed what? in his 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 bloated and unpreserved corpse. Wasn't it embalmed or anything? Nope. What? It's just straight, just the hair Still covered in poo bu- and blood? Yeah, not even washed. It was part of oh. his dying wishes of his brother to not be prepared or washed or anything. What? Of that. Yeah. <laughs> but they did, they did manage to dress him up in his black leather jacket and his trademark jockstrap. So oh, there's Jesus. that. But the funeral became some sort of a party with his friends posing with the corpse and pouring whiskey and cramming drugs down his mouth. Oh, my God. Yeah, they concluded it by putting a bottle of Jim Beam next to him, and huh. his brother threw on a pair of headphones and a cassette player playing uh, a copy of The Suicide Sessions before they closed him up and wandered off. But that's the way G.G. Allen, or Jesus Christ as he was known originally, um, lived his life. That's that's his story in short. Wow! And I, that just that last part of the funeral. Sorry, where his brother puts on a pair of headphones and plays tape. That's kind of cool. I like that. That's like a really sweet moment between the two of them. Of all of the insanity that we've heard over the last like five ten minutes, that's the one part where I'm like, yeah, I kind of like that. That's not a bad idea. You know. See, that's I was okay with the putting a bottle of Jim Beam and the headphones yeah. on him and putting them down. That's a, the dumping yeah. it in his mouth and cramming the pills and stuff in there. Yeah. God, the, the drugs smell. In. Oh God, yeah, bloated as well as covered in poo and oh God, I, just, I don't really want to think about but, it. I've got Crohn's disease. I deal with this stuff every day, and even that's disgusting to me. So. It's yeah, it's it was pretty rough. I, I don't know so much that he was an idiot, but he was batshit crazy. So oh, there's yeah. that. There is that. Yeah. I think it's pretty amazing, that story. And I'd, I'd heard Elements of the Death before. I, th- I can't remember where I... I think it was like an article back in like maybe the early 2000s where I heard about like the most famous rock star deaths of all time and you'd have like Hendrix and Mama Cass and all that lot. And then they were like Gigi Allen. And I was like, who the f- 
fuck is Gigi Allen? Because I was like 18, 19. I didn't, uh, you know, from North Wales. I didn't know who this person was. And then when I started researching his life, I was like, oh yeah, this guy was definitely a punk rocker. Oh yeah. Like, I I kind of wonder how many people actually knew who he was at the time. If yeah. you knew he's running around saying he's going to kill his audience, would you show up to a show? <laughs> I don't think so. I think, although, imagine if he'd done that today and had a social media presence, this guy would be the Logan Paul times a million of his day. He would be everywhere, denounced by everyone, and oh, yeah. as a result would be hugely famous. So, well, just, Yeah, look at what just happened with Lil Nas X and his shoes. I know. Good grief. That's kind of crazy. So, And all Lil Nas X did was, was come out, really, and, and produce a controversial video. Uh, well, and controversial. The, the Satan Nikes. Everybody's Satan Nikes, out. oh yeah, with the blood in them and stuff, <laughs> yeah. Like, that's kind of, I get what he's trying to do, and there's a whole court case going on, but if Gigi Allen had had the kind of platform that some of these people do have, there oh. is no doubt in my mind that he would have been smearing feces all over this world in various different aspects. But we talk about idiots in different ways, and the definition of the word is quite loose. Because sometimes, you know, these people are quite nasty, or they might be quite, I don't know, like literally crazy. The president I did on the first episode, what was his name? Um, Andrew Jackson. Old he Hickory? Was, yeah, Old Hickory. He was genuinely kind of like, He's probably mad. There's something going on there. And when you hear about his upbringing, that's possibly the case. I feel like that's sort of the case with this guy because he had such an intense and quite abusive first six years of his life. But actually, there's something about him, even though he's threatened to kill people and pooed everywhere and done all these violent things, it's kind of one of those things where you feel he's not vicious. He's just a product of his environment and I kind of have a bit of a soft spot for GGL and having heard that story and having heard about his death before and stuff. So I can't really rate him massively high. However, you know, smearing yourself in feces, cutting yourself, attacking your fans, taking laxatives hours before an event, <laughs> that's just like, I, okay, you're doing it's stage performance. I get it. There's, there's a comedian called uh, Johnny Vegas in the UK who's very northern who used to get so drunk before doing his stand-up shows and his stand-up show w would be him trying to make a pot. He'd throw clay on a, a wheel and he'd try and make a pot out of it while drunk. Um, oh, and, and yeah, so he'd be drunk doing this. This is before he was discovered and became very, very famous. Um, he'd be like um, so drunk he'd be vomiting. So he'd mix the vomit in with the clay and, <laughs> and make a jar out of it. And the audience is screaming and laughing at the same time because this insane guy, also with a great name, Johnny Vegas, is doing this thing. But like the fact that he cut himself and he was covered in poo and blood and like that is really crazy and really dangerous and i'm sure he probably knew that he doesn't sound like a stupid guy i mean he got through high school even though he was basically on a bender his entire life so yeah, he's clearly got made... something about him yeah that, that, he's clearly that an intelligent guy plus points <laughs> yeah so i'm gonna say and and i think the rating for him is going to be lowered because i quite like this guy like, he seems like a decent guy. If you just sat him down, like, look, Gigi, do you want to have a cup of coffee? Let's have a chat. You know, like, you, I feel like I could have a conversation with him without him trying to kill me for a few minutes anyway. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to say Gigi Allen is like a 65. He's, he's, he's definitely an idiot, and his death is insane. It genuinely is insane. But I feel like he is a product of an early childhood that obviously destroyed him and his family. And, you know, that causes its own problems as well. But an amazing story, nonetheless, like Gigi Allen. And it would only happen in the world of punk. Like, I'm really glad that I didn't know about the spoken word thing or the kind of the traditional rock or the country. I'm really glad that he was creative. He clearly expressed himself artistically. Well, so, and he was a he was a big fan of was it Hank Williams Senior, and he was a huge inspiration cool. on him. So yeah, it was actually kind of cool. Hank the Third, Hank Junior's son, does right. uh, some Gigi Allen sound and stuff for sure. That's amazing. I love that. I love that Gigi Allen, despite this incredible life, had the opportunity to express himself and open up. And yeah, I like that. So I'm happy to give him sixty five out of that. Now, moving on to mine, this is where it's slightly different. There is an event that happens in world history, 
and I am going to give you two parties that are in some ways responsible for the event and the response to the event. So one is responsible for the response to it, the other one is responsible for the event itself. What I want you to pick is one of the two decide which idiot you want, because they're definitely both idiots, and (laughs) then rate them. So I'm going to start by saying four words that I'm sure will resonate with just about anyone who has been following world history for the last 20 years, because it was a huge event, and it affected the lives of tens of thousands of people, possibly hundreds of thousands. I'm talking about the Deepwater Horizon disaster. Okay. Okay. Deepwater Horizon, now, sorry, before I even get going, I had to do a lot of research on this, and a lot of it was, like, facts, and like, oh, the Deepwater Horizon was a semi-submersible, I was like, I don't care about any of that, tell me about the disaster, please, I don't care about the statistics. Deepwater Horizon was described at times as a lucky and celebrated rig, and in 2007 was still described as one of the most powerful rigs in the world, despite its being seven years old at the time, and there are a bunch of new ones out there and stuff. In February 2010, Deepwater Horizon commenced drilling at an exploratory well at the Macondo Prospect, about 41 miles off the southeast coast of Louisiana, at a water depth of approximately 5,000 feet. The Macondo Prospect exploration rights have been acquired by BP, British Petroleum, in 2009, with the Prospect jointly owned by BP, who had 65%, Anadarko Petroleum, never heard of them, 25%, and Moex Offshore, 2007. What a name. That's 10%. They owned it. So it was a joint venture between these three companies. Is that, Quite a uh, lot going on. Is that a relative of Donnie Darko? Uh, that's what I was thinking. I was like, <laughs> Anadarko? What is that? That's, that's got to be a conglomeration of names. There's no way there's one person called Anadarko. I don't know, anyway. Uh, The Minerals Management Service was the regulatory and inspecting body for offshore oil drilling and rigs in the United States at the time. It isn't anymore. You're going to find out why it isn't anymore. According to an associate press investigation, certain safety documentation and emergency procedure information, including documentation for the exact incident that I'm about to talk about, was absent it either just existed and mysteriously disappeared or someone shredded it. So, okay. yeah. yeah. Uh, the exact number of required monthly inspections performed varied over time. Uh, the inspections were carried out as required at the rate that they were supposed to for the first 40 months of this thing's existence. But after around 25... What's that say? After that... Around 25% of inspections just didn't happen. They were omitted. So a quarter of inspections just stopped happening. That's apparently down to just workload because these people, there weren't enough of them. There were tons of rigs and they just didn't have the time to do them. The investigation notes that this could also partially be due to things like weather movement, which precluded an inspection. So, you know, bad weather, you can't fly out there. That's fine. However, reports of the last three inspections for 2010 were provided under a freedom of information legislation request so they weren't published the press had to say give us this information or we will dig even further each of these inspections had taken two hours or less so an inspector showed up on a rig had a cup of coffee had a couple of chats and then left and that's yeah, not enough of an inspection really so. seems like a pretty big rig to only take two hours to inspect. Yeah, like, we've all seen the footage of this, and this this wasn't, like, a small rinky-dink operation. This was a big operation. So, to even, like, get on board, sign in, you know, all of that procedure takes time in itself, and then to check out and get off the thing, you're talking about half an hour there. So, well, even when I was driving a truck, the pre-trip yeah. inspection was a half hour. Exactly. <laughs> so, the whole bureaucracy around this meant that you had to spend basically a day on the thing, but they the last three inspections, they only had three hours. Anyway, as a result of this, at 7.45pm CDT on the 20th of April 2010, during the final phases of drilling the exploratory well at the Macondo, seawater erupted from the marine riser onto the rig, shooting 150 feet into the air. 
This was soon followed by the eruption of a combination of drilling mud, methane gas and water. The gas component of the material quickly transitioned into fully gaseous state and then ignited into a series of explosions and then a gigantic firestorm which just swept across the entire thing. An attempt was made to activate the blowout preventer. No idea what that is, but it failed. The final defense uh, defense to prevent an oil spill, a device known as a blind shear ram, was activated but failed to plug the gap. Obviously, damage done by the explosion had made that impossible. 11 workers were presumed killed in the initial explosion. The rig was evacuated with injured workers airlifted to medical facilities after approximately 36 hours. Deepwater Horizon sank on the 22nd of April 2010. The remains of the rig were located resting on the seafloor approximately 1,500 metres deep at the location and 400 metres northwest of the well, so it had drifted in the ocean, dragging a load of equipment along with it and causing even more disaster as it did so. The resulting oil spill continued until the 15th of July, so basically two and a half, three months, when it was closed by a cap. Relief wells were used to permanently seal the well, which was declared effectively dead on the 19th of September 2010. In January 2013, Transocean agreed to pay 1.4 billion US dollars for violation of the US Clean Water Act. BP had earlier agreed to pay 2.4 billion dollars, but faced additional penalties that could range from 5 to 20 billion dollars. That's a lot of money. In September 2014, Halliburton, who they've got an interesting history themselves. The devil. The devil, yes. Uh, <laughs> agreed to settle a large percentage of legal claims against them by paying $1.1 billion into a trust by way of three installments over two years. They couldn't even give them the $1.1 billion. They had to How did occasional. Halliburton get involved? Are they part of the Donnie Darko crew? Or? <laughs> Apparently they were part of the manufacturing process. So okay. um, there's so and many. They do do everything. They do. They, uh, yeah, starting wars. They were involved in the process of uh, setting the thing up, and so many companies have got like a, a hand and a part to play in the massive negligence that went on. It gets worse. On uh, the 4th, uh, 4th of September 2014, U.S. District Judge Carl Barbier ruled BP was guilty of gross negligence and willful misconduct under the Clean Water Act. He described BP's actions as reckless, while he said Transocean and Halliburton's actions were negligence. He apportioned 67% of the blame for the spill to BP, 30% to Transocean and 3% to Halliburton. BP issued a statement strongly disagreeing with the findings and saying that the court's decision would be appealed. I don't understand why they would do that at this point. We're about to see that their response was severely lacking, but just take it at this point. Like, you've messed up. A judge at the US District Court has found you guilty. Don't make it worse by appealing. People already hate you for this. Yeah. It's, but they it, did. On the 8th of December 2014, the US Supreme Court rejected BP's legal challenge to a compensation deal over the 2010 Gulf of Mexico oil spill. The settlement agreement had no cap, but BP initially estimated that it would pay roughly $7.8 billion to compensate victims. And that's obviously victims of the environmental knock-on effects, the families of the people who died, the injured parties, people who lost their jobs, all of that. So that is the first portion of it. That's BP, their responsibility, which apparently amounts to 67%, according to this judge. They are 67% responsible for the actual disaster itself. And it sounds like the people, the the Minerals Management Service were kind of negligent in the fact that they didn't do enough inspections of the thing and a bunch of people. They were just trying to make as much money as quickly as possible without really paying for the infrastructure to do it. So Right. So that's your first party, is BP, British Petroleum. We're about to get on to the second party, BP CEO Tony Hayward's PR disaster, which, yeah, yeah, here we go. Within hours of the Deepwater Horizon, I should point out, this is taken from an article by, what's that, Public Radio? NPR. NPR. NPR, that's the one. Sorry, I'll edit that and it'll sound super smooth. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Within hours... Of Deepwater Horizon's explosion, Glenn Dijian, I think it is, Dijian, was on the phone. He'd retired a year earlier after working with BP and Amarco for 30 years, and he wanted back in the game. 
Every day thereafter, he said, for about a week, I kept saying, do you want me to help? Do you want my help? Dajelian watched from the sidelines as BP executives declared it was not their accident, blamed their contractors, and made the, comp- uh, the company look arrogant and callous. The company's response has become a textbook example of how not to do crisis management. I was literally yelling at the TV set, Dajelian says. I thought the first reaction should have been more humble and more conciliatory. I was very upset that they didn't apologise. It sounded like they were hiding behind the lawyer's skirts. So, well, it was a little bit like that Shaggy song that now uh, wasn't me. I find, yeah, <laughs> it that's the way that seemed to play out. At least the way yeah. I remember it. And if they'd just come out and said those two words and then disappeared, it probably would have caused less damage, to be honest, compared to what they did. Still, when BP called Dejean about a week into the disaster, he jumped into his car and BP sent him as an ambassador to groups of fishermen and other people across South Louisiana. Dejean knew one reason for the company's colossal PR missteps. CEO Tony Haywood had slashed BP's public and government relations shop to cut costs. He basically fired his PR team, the ones that talked to the public, the ones that talked to uh, the people in government. He'd just gotten rid of them all. And he'd hired a bunch of much cheaper, random freelance people who may or may not know what they're doing. Um, (laughs) So the new people, who Dejean said were basically idiots, sent him on television to walk on beaches in a starch white shirt, which you're not going to come out saying, look at me, I've been working, I'm covered in oil, I'm helping clear out the spill. But you don't go out in like like a perfectly pressed white shirt when there's an oil spill going on, do you? That's just like, that's basic thing. They, they call it optics. That's bad optics right there. It's almost like he went out there prepared to show that he was going to do nothing. <laughs> exactly, yes. I'm I'm very rich. Check out my white shirt. Um, They didn't muzzle him, despite repeated insensitive comments like this one. There's, sorry, this is just an amazing thing. Tony Haywood now. There's no one who wants this thing over more than I do, you know? I'd like my life back. That's Tony Haywood. Yeah. Eleven people are dead, Tony. They want it back too. Yeah, their families (laughs) want their lives back, and you're just complaining because you're not playing golf or something. When a group of Louisiana state officials asked about Haywood, Dejean let his exasperation show. I said, the only time Tony Haywood opens his mouth was to change feet. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. (laughs) That's a really good one. Dejean recalls, it seemed like every day he was making a new gaffe. He didn't understand the animal that is the media. He didn't understand the public's perception of a foreigner in South Louisiana. Now, this is very important because Tony Haywood is an incredibly posh Englishman. He is privately educated. He's incredibly wealthy and it shows. And, you know, I think in America, the relationship between the haves and the have nots is is not a million miles away from it is in this country where people in the UK tend not to listen to people who are clearly from a very wealthy background because they just don't trust them because they they assume that they're entitled and sometimes that's true but this guy also has the added problem that he sounds like a bond villain so yeah well i was gonna say they they dislike people with an accent similar to mine as yes uh, condescending towards a, a lot of them they 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 feel that that's the way the accent comes off and then yeah you add the british britishness into to- it you Ooh. add like privately educated <laughs> britishness which is by its very nature condescending then you've got a, you've got a problem which is why dejean was brought on because he was a local so he could actually okay. talk to these people on their level people familiar with the inside of bp's crisis control effort and outside experts say early on bp didn't have a public relations strategy at all it failed to communicate the three key messages that the public need to hear after a disaster like this that bp was accountable for the disaster it was deeply concerned about the harm it had caused and it had a plan for what to do didn't do any of those things and anyone will tell you if you make a massive mistake in public and you want to get ahead of the story, you either do those three things or you say nothing and disappear. Those are your two options. And the second one wasn't an option, so they should have just gone with the first one. Experts also agree <laughs> that Haywood's propensity to say the wrong thing made him the wrong choice to be the face of the crisis, and BP's board took too long to figure that out. Clearly, he did not mean to be mean, 
even though in some cases he came across that way, says Glenn Selig, a crisis management consultant whose clients include former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich. I don't know. I don't know who that is. Uh, Apparently he got into trouble. Maybe we'll cover him in a future episode. I I don't know. I'll have to research him. Obviously get a better PR guy. Yes, exactly. Uh, (laughs) Selig says the company's PR advisors didn't serve Hayward well. Instead of uh, rescuing his image, a slogan the company launched with a slick ad starring its CEO made things worse. They produced a bunch of adverts with Tony Hayward saying, Oh, we've spilled oil. I'm terribly sorry. And just like, (laughs) what are you doing? They're sick of you. Get off TV. We will get this done. We will make this right, Hayward says in the advert. Oh, you're too late, to, mate. To which everybody responded, what's this wee shit? You got a little turn <laughs> in your pocket there? <laughs> yeah. Uh, we didn't do anything. It's your fault. Selig said it was like a doctor in an emergency room full of dying people telling the family members that everything will be fine. I would, I yeah. would agree with that. Uh, <laughs> they were putting out this message saying, trust us, we'll be able to make things right. At a time when they obviously couldn't, the oil was gushing out like crazy and they couldn't cap it. I think that was uh, a horrible misstep, Selick says. It's very hard to believe that everything is going to be okay when you're still in the middle of a crisis. What we need to hear at this point is we're doing everything we can to get it under control. And they didn't say that. They blamed everyone else. Clark Kaywood, director of Northwestern University's Graduate Public Relations Department, wrote a book that delves into BP's crisis response fiasco. So books have been written about this PR response. That's how bad it is. Clark says uh, they should have prepared to admit that they didn't have it under control because they didn't have it under control. And later on, when scientists found signs of huge plumes of oil in the deep water, Kaywood says BP executives were wrong to deny their existence. They were either uncomfortable with telling the truth or unable to tell the truth, which is classic. So they didn't even acknowledge that they existed? Three separate scientists told them that there were plumes of oil just lingering in the ocean. And BP were like, nah, nah. They're like, look, we've got footage. No, 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 it's not happening. You're lying. <laughs> so Kaywood says he'd given uh, he'd give the company's crisis management effort a failing grade. This is one of the biggest companies on earth, and the university professor's giving it an F compared to like its his third-year students who are probably getting B-minuses or something. <laughs> While I think the company will survive, and it has, its reputation has been irreparably damaged, and that's true. BP are just a mess. BP does get some compliments for replacing Hayward with Mississippi native Bob Dudley, creating an independent $20 billion compensation fund and running television ads that featured Gulf Coast natives. So when they realised that this toff from the UK wasn't cutting the mustard, they were like, can we get locals in who are going to sound calm? And they did, and it worked. So eventually they got it. BP insiders say the company quickly ramped up its social media campaign, which helped counteract earlier PR failings. So apparently their Twitter account, was the place where people went to vent their anger. But also, they were there to correct the mistakes. So the BP Twitter page had a better effort in managing the PR than the actual CEO of the entire fucking company. So... I hope whoever was running their Twitter got promoted. Yeah, and actually, the, the, apparently there's a segment where CNN are quoting some sort of scientific thing. The Twitter people are watching this. They see that there's a mistake. They contact the CNN reporters with the accurate scientific data. And CNN then have to go back on air and say, we have to make a correction. We've been contacted by the Twitter account of BP, <laughs> who have given us up-to-date scientific data, and we'd like to apologize for misleading our viewers. This is a Twitter account for a company. Those people deserve medals for having to handle right. that, because they were getting screamed at on social media, and they were still doing a better job than Tony Hayward. I've got a selection of Tony Hayward's best quotes and gaffes here. And I'd just like to read you through them. Hayward and BP in general initially downplayed the spill, stating on the 17th of May 2010 that the environmental impact of the Gulf spill would likely be very, very modest and called the spill relatively tiny in comparison with the size of the ocean, which is my (laughs) favourite quote of any company ever. It's like saying, well, yes, you have brain cancer. But in relation to the size of the rest of your body, it's kind of small, really. Right. So you'll be fine. 
<laughs> stupid. <laughs> but on the 27th of May, Hayward had changed his assessment, calling the spill an environmental catastrophe on CNN, which is accurate, but as a CEO, you want to be a little bit more careful because your job is definitely on the line, buddy, and you can't go around saying stuff like that. He received criticism for various statements that he made during the spill, including telling a cameraman, get out of there, during a photo op on the shores of Louisiana because the cameraman was, like, zooming in on, like, areas of the oil in the horizon and he was like no no no, don't look no no there's nothing going on what's wrong with you (laughs) and of course the one i mentioned earlier where he's like on the 30th of may he told a reporter we're sorry for the massive disruption it's caused to their lives there's no one who wants this over more than i do i want my life back it's just a classic line it's one of the stupidest things ever said in history in an interview on nbc on the 8th of june u.s president barack obama said that haywood wouldn't be working for me after any of those statements, referring to the remarks Haywood made following the spill. As far as I know, Tony Haywood is in a rare club of just two people to be directly criticised in passing by Barack Obama, the other one being Kanye West when he stole Taylor Swift's spotlight at the MTV Awards. (laughs) Great company there. So... And, and essentially, it's funny because we talk about politics and how politicians are, are actually very sly and very, very clever in when they say, when the President of the United States says about an acting CEO that if Tony Hayward had been working for him, he wouldn't be any more, he'd have been fired. That's a message to BP to fire this guy straight away. For sure. Yeah. Pretty certain. And I'm just going to leave it here with one last thing on Tony Hayward. At the time of his sacking by BP, and boy did they sack his ass, BP were paying Haywood an annual salary of £1,045,000. Now that's pounds, so essentially $1.5 million. Per year? Per year. And he'd been in the job four years. That's like winning the lottery every year. Exactly. But it gets better for him, worse for us. Because at BP, executives, especially CEOs, get bonuses. Obviously they do. Uh, And we're not talking about Christmas bonus. Oh, here you go. Here's $500. You know, put it towards your holiday this year or whatever it is. His 2008 bonus was £1.496 million for 2008. So again, probably about $2.2 million. And in 2009, his bonus was £2,090,000, about $3 million. So in the space of two years, he earned somewhere about $6.5 million. And this is a guy that went on TV and said, I just want my life back, while he stayed in a five-star hotel down the road. (laughs) If I had that kind of money, I'd want to get right back to it. Exactly. You would you would not want to spend any more time away from your delicious money than than he did. So I have to ask how, you. Go on. Sorry, you've got a question. Well, go on. How can I get a job where I just have that job for like two years and then I'm good and I can retire? Exactly. Well, I mean, no, he one did. year. He had a job. Six months. Yeah, just six months. Just give me six months. I never have to work again. But this guy had that job, job for like him. four or five years. <laughs> And he basically, and it's typical of a, a CEO in his position, he, he got the job after a previous guy retired who was a lord. And he got the job because he was like, I am going to save you money. And one of the ways he saved money was by cutting the PR budget to the bare bones. He was like, I'll do it. I, I get paid a million dollars. I'll go on TV. I do conferences in front of other <laughs> CEOs. And they like it when I give speeches like that. So, of course, the media are going to like it. But no, there you go. There's a man who's clearly not very good at the PR aspect of his own job. And he earned $6 million just in two years. We're not talking about the other years. I don't have statistics for his other time in office. But let's just, office, at the CEO. Let's just say he earned $10 million. Let's just go with that rough figure. It's bound to be Seems fair. So $10 million and he made possibly the biggest PR disasters in history. Now, the question I have for you, because obviously Tony Hayward fucked up, but he was only the CEO. There were actually people above him, like the chairman, who eventually got rid of him. BP, as a company, was making a series of either accidental or deliberately negligent decisions which led to this disaster. Who would you like to choose as your idiot? Would you like to choose BP, or would you like to choose Tony Hayward? I've got to go with Tony Hayward because as the CEO, you're yes. the father of the family. That's you're right. You're the head of the household. Well, that was yeah. really misogynistic of me, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's <laughs> you're the, the parent, man. damn it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it falls so, at his feet, the responsibility, basically. And 
Well, and he got the bonus probably from firing the PR people, so I can't imagine he was good at making super great decisions. No, and I'm sure the PR people that lost their jobs would have been like, well, calm as a bitch, isn't it? Yep, instant. Well, not instant, but pretty quick. Yeah, pretty quick and also quite quite disastrous karma for him. Uh, But yeah, so you're going with Tony Hayward. What would you say out of 100 score for Tony Hayward? Well, for lack of understanding that he wasn't going to come across well. Exactly. And that's the major one, isn't it? The fact that you're a Brit. You're like, I can do this. Like, No, you're British. This is Louisiana. Step back. Yeah, it's it's tough down there to connect and relate to people, and he didn't do that well. And no. the white shirt, and the it just it, the de- he was part of the denying, from what I remember yes. saying. Well, there's no plumes, there's no plumes, but yeah. no. <laughs> so th- that was a hell of an impact to mm. the whole golf region and shrimp yes. and entire industries completely decimated by this. The fishing industry, tourism. All sorts of uh, natural uh, industries completely destroyed by the the whole thing. And, you know, again, we talk about, like, legacy idiots. You know, generational impact. Um, While that does fall at the feet of BP, it was a huge disaster. And, uh, you know, I would recommend anyone who's not familiar with it and who wants to learn about it, go back and watch it. Because it was fascinating at the time to watch BP flounder when there's clearly this life-altering thing going on behind them, and they are one of the biggest companies in the world, it really made you lose faith in like corporate structures at the time. Yeah, and I can't help but just blaming the CEO because he is the corporation at that yeah, point. exactly. When he's the representative, it. and he's chosen to be the representative. And I would imagine he would have had something to do with cutting back the regularity of inspections and exactly. whatnot, too. Yeah. And that impact on the environment is long-term and legacy, like you said. I'd, I'd put him, God, it's got to be right up there, 80, 88. Jesus. Tony Hayward getting an 88. Yeah. That, is, that is a high one. I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't expect it to be that high. I didn't expect it to be as high as uh, the planet killer that we had last week. But well, um, I, f- I feel like he killed his fair share of the planet yeah. with his actions. Um, I mean, he didn't I, invent a way to do it. But- no. He sure it, followed through. He certainly did. And there's, there's there's instances in history where, like, companies or institutions are just, like, they are no longer welcome in areas. There is a, a famous thing in this country. Um, Liverpool Football Club had um, a Hillsborough disaster where 92 fans died when they were crushed against uh, a fence in an FA Cup game that was held in Hillsborough in uh, Sheffield. Um, initially, the press, well... One newspaper blamed the fans. They said that the fans were looting corpses, urinating on corpses. None of it was true. It was all lies. And that newspaper, who shall rename, remain nameless, because I'm a Liverpool fan, I don't want to mention them. Nobody in the city of Liverpool, you can go to any news agents, any corner shop, anything, you will not find a single copy of that newspaper on sale. They have been kicked out of press conferences by Liverpool Football Club uh, throughout history. When the determination came out about the uh, looking into the incident and uh, the first thing they said, the people who were carrying out the inquiry into the deaths of these people said, are the representatives of this newspaper here? And they put up their hands and they went, right, get out. You're not welcome. So I'd imagine, and that's just the deaths of 92 people. What we're talking about with the Louisiana area is complete environmental decimation for huge parts of that population. I'd imagine BP have no presence there anymore if they're smart. I uh, yeah, I wouldn't think that they they do, but I mean that we don't pay a whole lot of attention outside of the Gulf region to what's going on with like offshore drilling. Yeah. So they they might still be operating maybe maybe regularly maybe out there but under a different shell company. I do know that hurricanes came in right after that too and yes. I believe some of the oil and whatnot added to the disgustingness of the flooded Gulf region too. It wasn't great. It was um, a really... Uh, you, you remember these moments, don't you? These huge, huge moments from history when you are like, you're fully aware that you are witnessing something quite history-making happening. And it's it's terrible to watch it unfold. You know, I can remember exactly where I was when 9-11 happened, and I'm sure pretty much everyone can. Like, a lot of people from my mother's generation will tell you they know exactly where they were when they heard that Kennedy had been assassinated and and Martin Luther King and people like this, when these people, and John Lennon, when these people were assassinated, you know, because in that moment, you know that history will remember this for a very long time. And when this was happening over a period of weeks and weeks and weeks, 
we knew that this was a big deal and Tony Hayward just didn't seem to get it. And also we, we have to talk about the financial impact on the company. When you make a PR disaster, it, sh- it sends shares plummeting. It always does. Now, the shares were always going to plummet when you've got an environmental disaster like this anyway. But when your PR guy is costing you literally millions of dollars every day by saying, I just want my life back. I miss golfing. That's like real idiocy because this guy's only job is to make the stakeholders money. And if he's not doing that because he can't keep his fucking mouth shut, then he's clearly an idiot. So I'm happy with that score. Yeah, I I didn't even think about how it would have impacted like some of the uh, 401ks and stuff oh, yeah. here where people are re- pounding on uh, oil and gold and all of those things for retirement. Exactly. Like that. So the, the impact on everything, the economic structures, uh, the financial markets, the local environment, the population, the food, the, the wildlife, everything is affected by something like this. It's like, it, and apparently it was like, it had three times the impact that the Exxon Valdez disaster had, which was another yeah. huge, terrible disaster. There we go. Tony Haywood, former CEO of BP, gets an 88 on the um, the idiot scale, but I'm sure his millions of millions of dollars will make up for the fact that he has a huge score. And I don't, I know we, we, we cover this and I've always said, you know, from the start, we don't mean to be malicious at all with any of this, but, um, you know, when you say, oh, well, don't be too mean against people, you know, they call them the idiots and stuff. Tony Haywood is very, very rich. I'm sure he's fine. I, I know this will probably have had a, an effect on his mental well-being, but he has millions and millions of dollars. So he will be OK in his life, if, even if he never works again, which well, I know he, he is. He somewhere here. Nobody would know who he is anymore. Exactly. Just you know, it was a long time. To... It was 10 years ago. So he's probably moved on with his life. I do hope the people of the Louisiana area who have at least managed to recover. It's an awesome part of the world. And I do hope that that part of the world has been able to recover and bounce back and maybe, I don't know, adapt. And hopefully the wildlife has recovered as well. But there we go. Tony Hayward and Gigi uh, Allen. I called him Didi Allen last week. Gigi uh, Allen, <laughs> you're two idiots. One of them was raised in really quite rough circumstances and had a really tough upbringing and kind of continued a bender for the rest of his life and died in one of the most shocking circumstances ever. And the other one was an idiot, really like a classic idiot and a bit of a prick who didn't seem to understand his shortcomings and just didn't step away. So you have one who is created out of terrible circumstances and another one who is completely unaware of how bad he's doing. So our two idiots of the week. Um, Yeah, that's the best idiots is the ones that have no idea. Exactly. I think I'm one of them. I think I'm. I, I think we all know that there are idiots inside us. But you know, at least you have the uh, moment of introspection where you can say, "Oh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe I shouldn't have said that." Tony Haywood had that part of him missing, apparently, it's and wandered off. Yeah, uh, <laughs> along with the people he fired. So, Derek, there you go. That was episode five. What did you think of this week? I, I've got to say, I really enjoyed the Gigi Allen story. It's just a fascinating life. Oh, he he was insane, and there's there's so much more that people can dig into on him he's he's got various um videos or documentaries about him um i would recommend checking him out because it's just like what no (laughs) you can't you can't believe it you're like there's no way that happened but yeah i did and then i take a lot of joy in in hearing some of the history that's current like the costa concordia and the bp stuff this is stuff i remember living through and since I still feel like a kid at heart, I, I feel like it, it was just the other day, yes, decades ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the BP thing was 10 years ago. I think Costa Concordia was also around about that time, maybe a couple of years before that. But yeah, that's crazy. A lot of the details you bring to it are, are super enjoyable. Oh, thank though. you. Man. I appreciate thank it. You. Same for you as well. The Gigi Allen stuff was just... I had no idea about the whole like taking laxatives. Oh, that's just insane. Um, in fact, I've got a joke. It's all about the show prep. <laughs> I've got a joke I need to tell you off air, but I, I, it, even though we've talked about stuff, I need to uh, I need to tell it you off air because it's so unbelievably the story is so unbelievably gross. I don't think I can even tell it in the podcast. So um, yeah, thank you very much, Derek, and thank you for everyone for listening. And remember, we tell you these stories because history is essentially one giant lesson for the future of mankind. If you are someone who has had a tough life. Try and not make the mistakes that Gigi Allen did. Um, And if you are working at a high level in any industry, please don't fucking be Tony Hayward. And um, (laughs) until next week, I'm Lev. Derek, would you like to say goodbye? Talk to you next time. 
Thank you, everybody, and we will see you again next week. 